Hey friend, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary, and here we are, another week, another episode of our Bible study series that we are calling the Bible for Grown-Ups. We are in part three of our look at the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, a big fancy term, the theology of the Holy Ghost being pneumatology. We're looking tonight at what scripture says about speaking in tongues and how that all works with the Holy Spirit. I'll see you on the other side. Okay, fair enough, I could start. Hey, uh, so tonight we're looking, tonight our uh, talk together is called Filled with the Spirit. We're gonna be camped out basically in these two portions of scripture, Acts chapter two and 1 Corinthians 14. And as we're wrapping up this uh, idea of the Holy Spirit, this little mini series on the Holy Spirit. Let me just one more time kind of take us back way up top so we can look down and see where we at actually in the story and why are we even talking about this? Because we're in the middle of a liturgical season right now that has uh, has a beginning, which is a Passover or we call Easter or Resurrection Sunday, and this liturgical time has an ending. And it's coming up here at the end of the month. I think on the 23rd, I think is the date. I'm supposed to know this stuff. And that's the celebration of Pentecost. Okay? So while we're talking about the Holy Spirit here, is, is, let me just, what's happening in the narrative of the church. So Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem on a Roman cross. And then he's in the tomb for three days. And then he is seen alive, and those visions or those uh, wit those uh, sightings are eyewitness accounts. Jesus appeared to his disciples and followers many times in this intra period that we're talking about after Passover, before Pentecost. Okay, so why why is Passover important? Because Jesus was an observant Jewish person. Which meant that the reason why he was in Jerusalem whenever he was crucified is because he had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Okay, Now within the idea of religious holidays and festivals, there's another holiday that comes up 50 days later. That's where the term Pentecost comes from. 50. 50 days later. And people who are Jewish and observant will then return back to Jerusalem to offer the first fruits of their harvest. Okay? So the first part of the harvest is coming in and the people are, the observant people are asked to, to bring a portion of that back to Jerusalem, back to the temple as a first fruits offering. So what we're celebrating in the church here on one end is the resurrection of Jesus and on the other end, Pentecost, something that changes Christianity fundamentally. The coming of the Holy Spirit into each individual life. That happens during the festival of Pentecost. Okay? So that's why these two religious holidays are tied together. We're actually going to look at this uh, event, Acts chapter 2. This week we want to look at uh, what is it life? What does it mean to lead spirit-filled lives? 
Let me go ahead and just dig into Scripture so that now that we kind of know what we're doing, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they... Now, the they here are the disciples who were asked to stay in Jerusalem by Jesus, right? So they're in the upper room. They were gathered together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to uh, rest on each one of them. Verse 4 says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit uh, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, one more fundamental important thing to remember about how the Holy Spirit works in the Bible. In Hebrew Scripture, in the Old Testament, the, the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of God, would descend upon individuals, a group of people. Sometimes uh, the Holy Spirit would descend upon the people as a whole. And in those instances in the Hebrew Scripture, when the Holy Spirit would enter, the Holy Spirit also departs. That's not my interpretation. Hebrew Scripture indicates that there were times when the Holy Spirit would encounter a group, a person, or a group of people, and then there would be a time when that spirit had left that person or those group of people. That's what's in Scripture. That's fundamentally different than what we find in the Holy Spirit because we're promised that when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit never leaves us. That's one thing. The other thing is the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was placed upon the people, interacted in the world for the benefit of God's people. For some mission that God needed from the people. The Holy Spirit descends upon the believers in Christianity through faith for their benefit. Like I've said the last couple of weeks, and I'm not completely certain that this is wholly theologically sound, but it sounds good to me and it's the way that I kind of remember it. And it's kind of like in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit advocates for God. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit advocates to God for you, right? That word that we find of the Holy Spirit, remember, we have uh, ruach, which is the Hebrew word for spirit, and ruach means breath or wind. That word gets converted in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Hebrew scriptures that were in Hebrew and then people who uh, wrote and read Greek uh, translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. That book became the Septuagint. And when that book was uh, written, so when the Hebrew scriptures were um, translated into Greek, the word stopped being ruach and started being pneuma. And we know that, again, from our science or from our medical uh, kind of basic knowledge, that pneuma often is a prefix having to do something with wind or breath or air, right? Uh, pneumonia is an affection of our respiratory system, okay? So that word, same wind, uh, breath, same word, ruach in Hebrew, pneuma in, uh, in Greek. And then whenever the word 
gets used by Jesus in John 14. He doesn't use the word pneuma anymore. He uses the word paraclete. And paraclete, that word means an intercessor. And we can kind of divide this word down a little bit. Para, like a paralegal or a paramedic. Someone who comes alongside and assists. And a lawyer or assists a doctor. Para, that's what it means, to assist. Clite or clitos in the, in the plural means it comes, actually comes from the root kaleo, which means to be called. We've had a sermon series called kaleo. In other words, what are we called to as Christians? So when we put this word together, we see the intercessor is someone who comes alongside one who believes, one who is called by God. If you are called by God, Jesus says you have an intercessor, the English word, that will come beside and assist you as a believer. Okay? So, the Holy Spirit begins advocating to God now on your behalf and works in your life to transform you. Okay, so um, let's also return back to uh, the beginning. John chapter 14. Remember when Jesus said, it's actually best for you if I go away so I can send the counselor or the comforter same same thing here the intercessor right the Holy Spirit in that verse called the paraclete also means the helper uh, the guide as well as the intercessor it's better if I go away because when I go away I'll send a paraclete and you will receive power now what kind of power last week week two we looked at the power to share Christ boldly. The Spirit's power in those places in your life where you're weak. We looked at the power to have hope in a hopeless world. We looked at the power of the Holy Spirit, which gives us the power to know God more intimately. We also have talked about how the Holy Spirit gives fruits of the Spirit. So in your life, whenever you've exhibited love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, self-control. Those are benefits. Those are evidence of the fruits of the Spirit working in your life. Scripture also says these believers were filled with the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, who now dwells in the lives of believers. Right? The Bible uh, says, and they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I'm going to talk to you guys about speaking in tongues tonight, by the way. And uh, the reason why I say that with a smile is because it's at this moment that things get tricky. Things get controversial because people speak in tongues. Actually, in Acts chapter 2, it says they were speaking in other human languages. And if we read the story, the Bible says that there were God-fearing Jews from all over the world there. Why? Pentecost. Remember, they were returning with their... Okay. And they go, wait a minute. That's my language. Is that, is that my language you're speaking? You're speaking my language. And they were so confused by what the disciples 
were doing that they actually say, uh, these guys must be drunk. Peter had to stand up and say, no, they're not actually drunk. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, come on, guys. It's only nine in the morning. I promise you, they're not drunk. You may think they're drunk. They're not. They're just speaking in other tongues because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's going to come back here in just a second. Speaking of speaking in tongues, um, this was very, very confusing to the people watching it go down. And here we are 2,000 years later, and, and many religious, many dead denominations, Christians, struggle with the exact same very issue, this gift. Very controversial in many circles today. If you've been around the church world for any amount of time at all, often it comes, and you, you might have seen it, people who believe in the gift of speaking in tongues. When it comes to this issue, this is another thing we talked about in week one, where sometimes, because there's so much we have to rely on faith about the Holy Spirit, sometimes what happens is there's kind of a pendulum that swings in, in our churches. Sometimes we swing one way, and the Holy Spirit freaks us out so much that we just don't even talk about it. We ignore it, right? Or it, it goes the other way, and it's all we want to talk about, right? So you'll have churches that will say, to the point of, uh, they'll say things like, the apostolic age is dead. And what that statement means, which is this really crazy statement, what it means is the Holy Spirit was once active in the lives of the early church that we read about here in Acts, but the way the Holy Spirit worked with those believers no longer uh, applies to us. Okay. I don't believe that. I'm, I'm giving you the example of how far the pendulum swings one way or the other. There are people who believe that the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit is read about in the New Testament, does not work in our lives like that today. I don't believe that. That's one end of the spectrum. It swings the other way, and it says that if you need to be saved, you need to be able to speak in tongues. Okay. Is that true? No. Nope. That is unequivocally not true, and that is not in any way backed up by Scripture. So, again, I'm going to give you my interpretation. That word's going to be a big one tonight about how the Holy Spirit works. And before I take the deep dive into it, I want you to know that I also understand that this is not the only interpretation of the Holy Spirit that there is out there. Right. So if there are things that you disagree with me on it doesn't mean that you're wrong just because I've said it out loud and you didn't right different interpretations I'm going to give you one but here's here's the challenge between me and you intellectually so I'm going to give you my interpretation but I'm going to back my interpretation up with scripture right and so if you have a different interpretation and you can back it up with scripture I'm sincerely say I would love to hear it because I don't care about being right. I just want to be closer to God. Right. So if you've got a better way of understanding Scripture that you can back up with God with Scripture, I am all ears. Okay, but I do want to look at two big thoughts about this. The first one, we learn, number one, we learn very directly from Scripture. Please listen. 
that when someone speaks in tongues publicly, like in a church, the Bible teaches us that there should always be an interpretation. Amen. If the Holy Spirit moves someone to speak in an unknown language, some people call it a prayer language, right? It could also be another language on earth, like we learn from Scripture. Whatever that gift is, if there is ever a public speaking in tongues, the Bible says in church, there must be an interpretation. Let's look at Scripture. Because in my opinion, it's crystal clear. We're now in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I'm going to read, uh, firstly, verses 27 to 28. The Bible says, this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. In the Bible, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time. And someone must interpret. He continues, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself or herself and God. If God has given you this gift, it appears that if you are in a church, you can pray kind of quietly or you can speak kind of quietly in tongues. But if anyone has a message that they are going to give to the body publicly, Scripture is crystal clear. There must be an interpretation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 23, Paul says, so if the whole church comes together, okay, he's kind of setting up this... Um, Goofy hypothetical. Like, like, just in case you guys are going to come back and ask me this question, I'm going to go ahead and answer. It's almost like a parent to child. Like, you go ahead and answer the most ridiculous question you know they're going to ask, just so you head them off at the past they don't bother to ask. So if the whole church comes together, Paul says, and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Paul is warning them. They're going to discredit you and not hear the message. So that is one thing Paul says very, very specifically, that when someone speaks in tongues publicly, there should be an interpretation. Please note how I'm using words like publicly. Always, right? I understand. I'm not talking about in your prayer time when you feel moved and you... I'm not talking... That's not what this is. Okay? Number two. The second thing that Scripture is very clear about is that the Bible teaches us that speaking in tongues strengthens the person speaking, not the entire church. Remember, Holy Spirit is here to work with you, brothers and sisters. Now, the fruits of that, can that benefit the body? Yeah. You betcha. You betcha. Of course. But that's not what this is. There's a difference between speaking in tongues, which is your personal connection with the Holy Spirit, and prophesying. Speaking a word to someone. Has anyone ever had a word spoken to them? Someone comes up and says, God's just told me. I just feel like, right? 
I just had that the other day. It just meant the world to me. And it was, I knew it was spirit-filled because I had not had this conversation with that person about this issue. And they, out of the blue, mentioned this issue. And I was like, listening, God, yes, uh-huh, I have ears to hear, right? Prophesy, that's what that is. Okay, that's different. That's different than speaking in tongues. Let's see how Paul talks about that. 1 Corinthians 14, a little earlier up, 4 and 5, Paul says, A person speaking in tongues is strengthened personally, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. I wish you could all speak in tongues, but even more, I wish that you could speak prophecy. For prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues, unless someone interprets what you're saying so that the whole church could be strengthened. That's very interesting. Because when Paul is talking to the early believers here in the church in Corinth, there was a lot of infighting going on in the Corinthian church. And, it's, it, it, and, and we look back on it sometimes because I think that we sanctify all early believers like they couldn't have ever done anything wrong. And you know what? The folks in Corinth were just like us, and they were having church fights just like we do. The good news for them is they had somebody like Paul writing back to them, telling them how to fix their problems. That's what the Corinthian letters are. He had heard about some problems they were having in the church. One of them was this issue. There were other civil matters. They were suing each other and all of this other kind of stuff. They were letting money in the church affect the church rather than how love should affect the church. And Paul gets wind of this, and he actually, they've got enough problems that they, he ends up writing two letters to them, right? First and second Corinthians. But this is one of the issues that he's counseling them on. Let's see what he says. Um, in chapter 12 of first Corinthians, we see Paul illustrating those gifts of the Spirit. And then in chapter 14, here we go, he has an explanation. Sandwiched right between 12 and 14 is 13, right? And in 13, he uses that opportunity to give context to love as one of the gifts. It's interesting. All of those things that I listed out, love, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of that stuff. It's interesting. Sandwiched right between these two chapters he spends a whole chapter speaking directly to speaking in tongues and love. The first thing he said about love and tongues, is if you have the gift of speaking in tongues, if you speak in tongues as men and angels, but have not love, you are a resounding gong. You are nothing but a clanging cymbal. Speaking to these Corinthians, and basically he's saying in verse 18, and I think you can hear the tension. Remember, he's writing back to a church he most certainly loves, but a church that he has taught better, right? And it's almost like he's saying enough of this stuff. Don't focus on the gifts. Focus on the giver of the gifts. And don't make me say this again. I think Paul is saying he doesn't say that. I hear him saying that. If you listen closely, I think you can hear the tension in his writing. He says in verse 18, he says, I thank God. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Right? 
So speaking in tongues is a gift from God and it is valid. It's not what I'm saying. This is verse 19. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I would rather do five words that the body of believers could understand that would bring them closer to God than thousands of words in an unknown language. What, what might those five words be? I don't know. Maybe, hey, Jesus loves you a lot. That's good five words. It's better than the 10,000 in a tongue that people don't understand when it comes to church. He asked me, do you believe Jim, Pastor Jim, do you believe in the speaking of tongues and is it valid today? And the answer that I give you is absolutely unequivocally yes, I do. I absolutely unequivocally believe that there is no end to the apostolic age because I have been promised that the Holy Spirit, once it came to me, would not depart me. Amen. Right? So how could the apostolic age end? Amen. Okay, it's happened. Yes. Right? Now, the reason why I bring this issue up, because, again, there's so much uh, confusion. The pressing question, I believe, the most important question for all of us, do you have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit? This is no. that very tricky question. No. Respectfully. Respectfully, but absolutely and completely, if you believe that, you are biblically uninformed. The answer unequivocally is no, you do not. In fact, I would argue until the day that I die is that the best evidence of a spirit-filled life is a believer who exhibits the fruits of the spirit. Amen. Love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. If somebody interacts with you and at the end of that interaction, they might think something like, wow, I bet that's what Jesus is like. If you have an interaction with somebody and go, wow, that's what grace, love, and understanding feels like, that person is different. That is evidence of a spirit-filled life, not the words that you've spoken or not spoken. So how do we live spirit-filled lives? What does it look like, and what does it mean to be filled with spirit? Let's look at a very couple important sections of Scripture, Galatians uh, 5, 16, and 17. So I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You won't continue to live in sin if you're led by the Spirit. Right? Those of you who are believers, when you are spiritually born again, when you are trusted in Christ, spiritually you are renewed. And yet you encounter also a very real presence of the Holy Spirit. Whether you felt him or not, the Holy Spirit moved in you. And I think that's the thing people sometimes don't get. I had this conversion experience when I was a child. But I don't think I've ever felt the Holy Spirit. Well, that, that didn't mean the Holy Spirit didn't enter you. There's other reasons why, a whole bunch of other reasons why the Holy Spirit might be in you and you're not witnessing it. A big one probably is you don't know what to listen for. Or you do know what to listen for, and you're ignoring it. Right. Okay? So, and this is why I wanted to bring up from Acts chapter 2. This rocks my world. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 and 18, Paul says, So be very careful how you live. 
Don't live like fools, but those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Verse 18, here's the one, here's the key. Don't be drunk with wine because you'll ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting when we go back to our opening verses, the disciples who are filled with the Holy Spirit uh, were confused with being drunk? And Paul said, don't be drunk, be filled with the Holy Spirit. When someone is uh, drunk, um, when someone is driving a vehicle and they get pulled over for the police and they get arrested, what's that called? What's that stand for? Driving under the influence. When someone is drunk, they're under the influence of alcohol. There is something else that's controlling them. Under the influence of alcohol, they think differently, they talk differently, they have different behaviors. Yes? Yes. Think, have different thoughts, speak different words. They have different behaviors. Paul says, don't be under the influence of alcohol, but be filled with the Spirit. You could say, get a DUI with God. Amen. <laughs> be under the influence of the Spirit. And when you're under the influence of the Spirit, you'll talk differently, you'll think differently, you'll act differently, you'll live differently. Isn't it interesting that a substance like alcohol is a very, very bad counterfeit for what the Holy Spirit actually wants to do in your life? I think it's interesting that when you're under the influence of the Spirit versus alcohol, alcohol might give you the confidence to attempt something jump off the hotel into the swimming pool, something like that. But under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will give you the confidence to have the ability to do something. Amen. To better serve the church, to make a difference in the world, and to be a better person in all of your relationships. All through the gifts and the Spirit of the Spirit that will move in you and through you. How do we experience all of the Holy Spirit, another question some people have, again, back to this idea of when I had my conversion moment, we say, Scripture says that the Holy Spirit enters us, right? And this happens a lot. And, and some people will say, well, yeah, there is such a thing as the entering, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But then something happens along later in your life where you decide to make a change and you get what's called the second blessing. So do you get one heaping spoonful of the Holy Spirit or two scoops of the Holy Spirit, like Raisin Bran, right? Actually, first of all, I would argue if there's two, then there's 33 billion, right? right? If there's more than one, then it is a constant interaction. But I happen to believe in both. But I happen to believe in one. Because the power of God doesn't need a do-over. When God moves in your life and you decide to change your life, even if it takes 30 years for you to finally turn your life fully over to God, that decision was made a long time ago. God didn't need a redo. That's how God's holy power works, right? And that's why we say here, that's why the disciples of Christ say, there's only one baptism. So when people come to me and they say, well, can I get baptized again? No, no, you can't get baptized again because there's no reason for you to get baptized again. The Holy Spirit doesn't need a do-over with a second baptism. What we can do is we can celebrate that original decision. You can make a recommitment to these ideas in your life, but you don't need the Holy Spirit to recharge. You don't, this isn't changing out the batteries in the remote, right? It doesn't work that way. Those of us that are here today, for some reason, it's because the Holy Spirit brought you to this moment. 
so that you might understand a little bit more of the very same spirit that raised Christ from the dead and that that spirit is available to you. That you don't have to live spiritless lives, but you can be filled with the pneuma, the ruach, the paraclete, the wind of God, the power of God to have a supernatural life, a very natural world. Holy Spirit's available to you and he wants to touch you, to comfort you, to guide you, to empower you, to live through you, to give you gifts to serve the church and make a difference in the world. So be filled, continually filled, friends. Don't be drunk on wine. But be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And you'll never be the same. Amen. Any questions? Nope. Nope. Thank nope. you, guys. I'm sure glad you preached on that. You know, as we have reflected back on the story that we find in the ending of the gospel accounts, as well as the early portions of the letters to the, the or the Acts of the Apostles, as well as what we have in Paul's commentaries about the power of the Holy Spirit and its importance in our spiritual walk, it, it still just strikes me that that pendulum swings amongst we believers even so far as to saying that maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't even empower our lives anymore. Maybe it did for some people at one time. It just doesn't do that anymore and that I can't wrap my head around it. I almost feel like it's being a 16-year-old on their birthday and be given a brand new car and not understanding of the importance of gasoline. And then we wonder why this wonderful gift we've been given doesn't work like we've been promised. And so rather than trying to understand, we literally walk one foot in front of the other away from the gift. But we don't blame ourselves. We blame God. something to think about. Hey, I hope you join us next week. And until then, friend, be blessed.